Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. Today I'm very honoured to have in my presence uh, Mr Patrick Hunt. Welcome Patrick. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's very good to be here Anthony. Thank yeah. you. And uh, we're at Ballarat, the National Coaches Conference. Patrick gave the opening address yesterday which was uh, I found very interesting and gave me a few things to work on in terms of what I want to achieve with my coaching career. So I noticed, uh, I heard yesterday when you said uh, you're from Tamworth, a uh, small mm. country town, drove there on the way down <laughs> the other day to Ballarat. How would you get into basketball? Well, it was interesting. At school, we used to play rugby league, rugby union, swimming, and uh, a bit of track and field, of course. And uh, a school teacher introduced basketball to the um, to the school, and uh, a few of us decided we'd play that as well as a range of other sports. And one thing led to another, and then uh, I decided basketball was pretty good fun to play. And then fell into coaching because no one was looking after the group coming along behind us when uh, when we were playing. So I started coaching. Uh, uh, early at the age of 17, I think it was, and, uh, and then looked after a group coming along behind, and that was the start of coaching, and we had some success and mm. um, graduated there into becoming an assistant coach with their under-16 state team, as it was then, uh, and then was head coach of our New South Wales country under-20 team, and then the under-20s then merged back into one team per state and coached our uh, New South Wales team to our national championships in 79. And at that stage, the national junior programs had started a few years earlier in 1976. Um, and that was a precursor to the World Junior Championships in Brazil, right. the first one for men yep. in 79. So I was appointed assistant coach to those. And then in 81, the Canberra Cannons came knocking on my door to... Um, asked me to move to Canberra to coach the Cannons in the National League. And at the same time, the Australian Institute of Sport was starting with Adrian Hurley being the foundation coach of that program. And uh, so I was coaching in the Cannons, and at the end of the season, of course, the um, uh, the AAS approached me and said, would you like to join Adrian? And Adrian approached me with Don Talbot, the uh, director of the AAS then. And... Um, so I started there and uh, then became head coach of our national junior team and assistant coach to our Olympic teams and mm. well, I went from there. So. Yeah. So um, do you think there's a uh, – is it harder for coaches in regional towns to get involved? Well, I think – And if it is, like how do you overcome that or how did you overcome that? Yeah. I always had an interest and curiosity to learn about um, coaching and teaching the game and enjoyed being around uh, people, enjoyed working with people. And, um, and see how the people develop and progress as part of your progression uh, because I felt if we were going to expect our players to become better, then we needed our continuing development and continuing improvement process to, uh, to happen. So I used to travel to Sydney and different clinics and um, I went to the United States early for about six weeks to learn more about coaching um, and find out how it was done and what coaches do and and so I guess the, the curiosity thing is a big one for me mm. uh, in that it doesn't matter where you are if you have that curiosity to learn and want to become better 
and then uh, enrich the lives of others through that, then um, the distance and where you're located isn't isn't a factor. Mm. Um, so for me, that that was. Uh, that's that's what I did. Yeah, and when in those early days of coaching with New South Wales rep teams and so on, did you have anyone in particular that influenced your style of coaching, or um, anyone that inspired you to well, sort of uh, go on to the things that you've done? In the early days, it was uh, was Lindsay Gaze, of course, who was our national coach, and Adrian Hurley, who mm. was then the the, well, the part-time New South Wales director of coaching. I didn't know at the time would end up working together at the uh, AAS. Uh, in Canberra, and um, they had uh, were two that had big influences on my career, and then later on, of course, Barry Barnes, who was a, a boomers coach, and we were actually assistant coaches to the '92 Barcelona Olympic team with Adrian as, as head coach. And then, of course, there was a range of, or there were a range of coaches in the U.S. Um, Mike Shashevsky, who's at uh, Duke University, Lou Olson, who formerly coached at Iowa and then uh, Arizona, and Bob Knight, who, uh, who coached at, uh, at Indiana. And then some European coaches, uh, Mario Blasoni from Italy, who mm. we had out here in Australia years ago to run some clinics, and a guy named Svetislav Pesic, who was uh, the former Yugoslavia uh, coach, junior coach. Um, and I got to know them through our national junior programs. Yeah. And we would, uh, I'd go and visit regularly into Europe to find out and see what was happening there because we needed to expand our horizons of play, mm. um, just broaden that from USA and get into Europe because mm. we had to play against the Europeans in, in World Cups and Olympics. There are more European teams to beat than anyone else, so mm. we had to do that. So so that, those early influences in terms of the style of play were sort of drawn from both the States and Europe? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and also the um, uh, the Russians were touring regularly, and the late Alex Kamelsky, uh, when the Russians toured in the late eighties, uh, we had regular meetings with him, uh, and then at the eighty seven World Championships, we met with the Russians as well to find out. So the principal influences were probably. Um, the former Yugoslavia, the Russians and the Italians. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as time grew on, we developed a relationship with the French and the Spanish as well because they were interested to see what we were doing mm. once we started to have a little bit of success. And so we had the swapping of information and what have you. And uh, it was amazing. We're fierce competitors, but uh, they were quite generous in... Uh, in sharing information and because we were of the all of the same view that the better we all become the better the standard becomes mm. and it's much better for the game yeah and in those early days we were I guess talking about developing the Australian style of play mm. as opposed to uh, and taking components from other areas and what were the things that you were particularly trying to drive at that point in time? well we've always uh, had a, an underlying principle of playing hard-nosed uh, man-to-man defense and um it was particularly important that we were able to maintain that uh, all the way through, and that 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 Australian style of play defensively was uh, has always been there from mm. from day one. I mean, since we first played basketball in the 1956 Olympics, that was our first foray into international uh, affairs um, of basketball, and uh, and then our women's team in 1957, I think, went to the first World Championships right. for women okay. by boat, I think, and. Um, <laughs> So I think offensively, though, we needed to um, uh, to to start to multi-skill our players because uh, we could identify early on around the world that players weren't being just confined to one position. Mm. They were developing the skills to play in a range of positions, uh, like one, two, and three were interchangeable, four and fives. 
but then also the the bigger players were developing what we'd call outside skills. Now, as we see now, they can all shoot the three. Mm. Uh, they can go inside and outside. They can defend uh, inside and outside. So offensively, we needed to uh, start to teach principles of play, but also develop a range of skills, offensive skills that enabled us to multi-skill. Mm. And so we needed to play this thing called motion offense, which taught principles of play, but then it really forced us into coaching fundamentals uh, really well from uh, you know for the younger ones, because without those fundamentals, you can't operate mm. those uh, principles of play, and that, that stands for whatever you're gonna coach in offense. Yeah. So, um, that's where we then started to really have big influences from uh, Mike Krzyzewski, Bob Knight, Lou Dolson, uh, and Svetislav Pesic in particular, because they were all motion offence exponents, but conversely, they were all very, very big on man-to-man defensive principles. Mm. So in after the Olympics in 92, Basketball Australia and the AAS asked me to take on a role to bring together all our national programs around Australia and and try and head us in the one direction. Uh, We were able to provide some assistance to the states and territories to start off the National Intensive Training Program, as it was called uh, back then. Um, And the principles of our Australian style of play, hard-nosed man-to-man defence, multi-skilling, being able to play several positions, that was our Australian style of play. So... When you came to play Australia, you knew that you had to get ready and play. You were in for a battle because we were going to battle every inch of the floor defensively and offensively we were going to run, uh, have a good medium to long range game but also had enough capability to go inside because mm. as the game was developing, we started to identify some genuinely bigger players that could play uh, on, the, uh, on the international stage. And uh, it was our Australian style of play. That was the evolution of that. Yeah. But influenced, of course, by the the groundwork that our our forefathers had uh, had established, you mm. know, way back in hard nosed man to man defence. And as we became uh, more skilled and the game became broader in Australia, we could develop these range of skills that would allow the the uh, the national coaches to run whatever they wanted. Mm. And do you think the framework today is that we, we draw influence from you know we do at a, at a local association or a mm. rep level from what happens at the on the national team sort of front? Do you think there's um, like an intention to make sure everything is sort of consistent? Well, it, I think the to me it, there's a danger in trying to clone the whole system, and and we don't want to do that. Mm. Um, and that's that's why we went to principles of play rather than a an offence. What are the fundamentals and elements of the principles of play that enable a player to go in and play whatever you want? Like Andre has his style and hopefully the players can come through and fit into that. But when Andre is no longer the national head coach, there might be a different head coach who Mm. might have a different style of play. Are the players who have been developed for that coach, do they have flexibility and adaptability to to play that? And that's that's the aim of the underpinning programs Mm. uh, in both men and and women. Um, So when, you know, Sandy has a particular style of play and... And so 
because the national teams have very limited amounts of time together. So we're obliged to, uh, or this was the approach, we were obliged to present players to them that were flexible enough to be able to run whatever they wanted to. Mm. So you wouldn't want to have the whole nation running the same thing all the way through because when that national coach finishes, you've now got a couple of generations that can only run one thing. So we need to be able to be uh, more flexible in that. Mm. I'd be interested to hear, uh, I know you're quite active in the um, FIBA organisation now, mm-hmm. and could you tell us a little bit about what you do there and, and the roles that you have? Sure. Um, I'm president of the World Association of Basketball Coaches, and in the last five years we've revamped our uh, coaching programs, so we now have a level one, two and three. That it doesn't. They're not quite the same as the old level ones, twos and threes. These are levels for coaches that have already been involved in the game uh, rather than beginner coaches so level one's got a fairly extensive content Mm. uh, and then it goes up to level three being the international senior club team level coach Uh, so we've revamped those Um, we now have developed a pool of instructors to deliver those courses we start we've started rolling out level one now um, this year and we'll do next year and then level two will be towards the end of next year and then we've got a framework and a, and a syllabus and curriculum for level three, but we're just going to work out how we're going to deliver that. Right. It may be one major international convention um, at a major you know, academic institution or club or somewhere where we invite people from around the world to come. We might run two of them, but we're thinking through that. Mm. So that's the, that's the major influence there. And we also provide input um, to the FIBA Technical Commission, and I'm also chairman of the FIBA Technical Commission, which in the uh, former days used to only be responsible for referees and their development. Yeah. Uh, but now we have players on it, coaches on it, oh, right. and it has a broader role about the interest of the game as well as the refereeing part of it as well. Yeah. So that commission hears suggestions for rules and debates rule changes, but also looks at dimensions of courts, um, style of play. Yeah. Uh, what are the current trends that are happening in, in men, women, juniors, uh, and what are our general thoughts that can improve the, the standard and the well-being of the game? Mm. So we meet once a year, but there are subcommittees of that that meet okay. through that and bring recommendations back to the commission for yeah. us to consider. And that commission then makes recommendations to the FIBA Central Board, which is the ultimate decision-making authority, mm. and they'll make decisions or accept or reject some of our offering. Most get accepted some get rejected. Oh, so. right. Okay. Well, what might be some of the things that get rejected? <laughs> well, it, it depends on, on... There are some equipment things that, oh, okay. uh, that or dimensions of the court or um, there aren't too many that get rejected. But um, but even at technical commission level, the rules advisory group, there are some recommendations they make, but after we discuss it... And, and the rules advisory group are mostly referees, but now cons- they consult with coaches and players before it goes to the technical commission right. so by the time it comes to us it's been fairly well thought through mm. and then we can just fine tune and have a look in more depth and see what what impacts it's going to have on the game because mm. often there are some unintended consequences mm. that you're not quite aware of that yeah. you might yeah. think well, we'll do this to get that or oh, hang on but that long term that might not have that impact mm. and we have to always keep in mind that whatever rule changes or equipment changes that you make uh, it affects the globe it's not just the higher level competitions it's it's all the competitions and how does that 
uh, um, cascade down to the the, uh, the younger levels. Yeah. How do you think technology will, will change the game going forward? Well, I think um, we have continuing debates, and one of the things that often gets accepted and rejected are the amounts of things that can be that can go to the instant replay system, because mm. otherwise you could have every call being contested and go mm. to the, the, the video replay. Um, but I think that will help the game. I think we have to keep that in balance. I think at the last, we have some work to do on the interpretation of the unsportsmanlike foul. Oh, yeah. I thought, but that that'll be an evolution. I think that'll that'll clear up over the next couple of years, um, because there were a lot of referrals during the World Cup, which mm. disjointed the game, and and aware of the view that we need to have a free-flowing, entertaining style of game that's good for the players to play and enjoy, but good for the spectators to mm. watch and enjoy as well. Yeah. So. Um, Technology certainly in coaching uh, has certainly had, a, had an impact in that there's more forensic examination of, of play and the elements that make up play these days. But uh, the better coaches, though, are able to have that analysed and, and synthesised in a way that they can use the information. Otherwise, you can collect a massive amount of information. Mm. And then what are you going to do with it? Some sports uh, actually brought in data analysts because they'd collected so much information. They mm. didn't didn't have a way to to work at what was actually meaningful. Yeah. And the coaches used to ask the question. I used to say, "Well, hang on. What what can I coach out of this? Yeah. How is this going to really impact the game?" Mm. So I think technology will give a more precise um, analysis of, of the game and the, and the systems of play and what have you. I think uh, the instant replay system will be further refined uh, to assist the game and not interrupt the flow. So I think it'll be uh, it'll be a positive for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know with your work that you do across Australia, but also at mm. that international level as well. Are there is there anything that you'd like to see more of or less of, or what sort of direction would you like to you know? Well, I mentioned this at the at the conference here today that. Um, we have to be careful we don't become imitators of, of the outcome. So, and what I mean by that is we see uh, lots of stuff on TV or um, YouTube or the various coaching websites and, and coaches can be drawn to just seeing a play or a system uh, and not give due regard to the fundamentals that underpin that play or system. So I think we have to go back and, uh, or not go back, but be very conscious of always teaching the fundamentals and the principles that underpin those outcomes of the plays. Mm. I mean, I told the story that it was an under-14 team that had five out-of-bounds plays and <laughs> three of them were from the NBA. And the coach said, oh, none of these plays work. And I said, well, can the kids catch? Can they pivot properly off either foot? And he went, oh, okay, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I said, mm. we'll understand the context, but go back and teach the basics and the fundamentals or the micro stuff before you can expect an outcome mm. for the macro stuff. Yeah, yeah, mm. for sure. So I think that's what I'd like to see more of. Yeah. Mm. I was interested also to see that you're doing some work with FIBA in the Africa program mm-hmm. and um, having coached some Sudanese kids up in Toowoomba, um, mm. I was interested to hear, you know, they have quite a quite a story, you know, by the time they get to Australia in mm. terms of their background and the challenges that they've had. Yeah. Um, what's happening in that space? Well, FIBA and the NBA um, run a program called Basketball Without Borders. And the program in Africa, up to 23 countries send three players or two or three players um, to a camp for a week 
where the NBA send players and coaches and FIBA do as well to work with them and work on their their basketball skills but also their life skills uh, and talk about things that we don't really well we're lucky in Australia because we have good nutrition we have good um, air to breathe we have good education systems good support networks and, and those can all could be improved of course but the Sudanese kids for example uh, come in and you look and you think well they haven't had good nutrition from day one probably mm. so they need to, to be able to be fed nourished strengthened um, so they can have the physical capabilities to play but then give them the, the mental skills as well to go along with that so these programs are meant to be a catalyst to create interest because coaches come to those programs from all those countries as well oh, yeah. and we run uh, uh, coaches clinics for them as well so when the kids go back they've got something to take with them they, they receive a written evaluation that goes to their federations as well um, and the coaches are there running or being involved in all the coaching sessions that we run with the players but also we have four coaches clinics as well and they attend those as well so they're armed to go back and they can start to develop their countries as well so we run that not only in Africa but in Asia in Europe and South America uh, uh, as well yeah. um, and there's one that's run in um, conjunction with the All-Star Weekend for the top 40 boys and the top 30 girls from around the world come together uh, and so you've got the best of those kids coming together. So I sit on the, on an NBA advisory committee for that and uh, am a director for those camps, but also for their NBA uh, academies programs, mm. uh, which are run around the world as well. Yeah, very mm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Without doubt, you've achieved and influenced the sport in Australia now internationally. Thinking ahead, what's the lasting legacy that Patrick Hunt will leave on basketball in Australia and internationally? Well, I, I'd like to think that um, through through all our involvement, we can make it more enjoyable and long-lasting for players, and they get from it the uh, tremendous uh, satisfaction and enjoyment and long-term relationships that we've all had mm. uh, through being involved in the sport. I mean, I heard um, Jenny Screen speak yesterday about the relationships that she's been able to forge through being involved in this wonderful game called basketball, and, uh, and I think coaching Coaches are the catalyst for all that. Mm. Um, the sport grows because of the interest of coaches and the dedication of coaches. And I'm always very proud when I move around the world in these various roles to, to talk about the army of volunteers that we have in Australia that give up their time to mm. provide wonderful experiences for the kids. And I said yesterday, learning is a change in behaviour due to an experience and coaches are responsible for not only providing the experiences but unpack them so they become more meaningful for players. So my legacy would be that we continue to develop an army of coaches around the world that can provide these terrific opportunities for kids that will uh, enrich them as basketball players but as people and their wonderful contributors to society. So I think that's a, a legacy to pursue. Yeah, and, and you know, like I said, you've, you've done tremendous things for basketball in Australia. Mm. I, I have to tell you, I've still got a DVD of a coaching clinic you did in about 2003. <laughs> oh, okay. And I still use one of those uh, shooting drills to this day. Good. So, uh, oh, excellent. Yeah. That's very good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, thank you. 
today, uh, Patrick, for making time to have a chat. Um, like I said, so much we could learn and talk about for hours and hours. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate what you've done for the sport here in Australia, but also what you're doing globally too. It's fantastic. Mm. No, terrific, Anthony. I'm grateful for to Australia and for the opportunities it's, it's provided me. It's been a wonderful uh, journey and one that I hope will uh, continue and we'll, we'll have fun and enjoy for a long, long time to come. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much. Matt. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at australianbasketballcoach at gmail.com. That's australianbasketballcoach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at OzBballCoach and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening.